we understand uh, that a student stormed the magistrate's court. Please uh, give us more information as to how that situation unfolded. Oh, okay. The, the students came here protesting and then they went inside uh, the, the doors of the court and then they were blocked by security guards and then the police were called here to the court. They were blocking. No one was able to come in and out or go out, especially the court staff. So it, 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 the court was delayed for like a, for more than an hour because the students were not letting anyone in or letting anyone outside the court until the court manager came to them and spoke to them about uh, uh, and asked them to move out of the court because they didn't have a permission to strike or to protest inside the court and it's not allowed. And he even indicated that this has never happened to this court or any court in in Devon, even the high court. This is, has never ever happened where the students or the people will protest inside court. So, Tony Pile, how was that situation resolved? Oh, okay. Um, the, the student uh, agreed to move a, a little bit back of the court, and then they moved outside at the gate. And then the, the court manager went inside to speak to the prosecutor so that he, the prosecutor will move this case a bit forward so, so that they will deal with it and, and, and finish with it and then so that the student will leave the premises. So has the suspect appeared uh, this morning? Oh, the suspect, and then the court, he, 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 he appeared in court and then the, the case was... Um, was uh, postponed until the 10th of May for formal bail application because he didn't have a lawyer yet and he said he has to contact his lawyer and then next week he will come here uh, for uh, for formal bail application. But what I can say, the guy didn't show any remorse when he appears in court because he even showed the sign of pulling a trigger when he walked out of the court and he was smiling and not he, he was hiding his face a little bit but he was also laughing and took out his hood and and look at us and then laugh we understand he handed himself over to the police um so did he in that process admit to killing kumala sorry did he admit to killing um uh, zolile kumalo when he handed himself over to the police he handed in himself to the police, but then we didn't get the full info if he agreed that he killed um, uh, Zolile Komalo. But then we'll get all that info maybe next week when he has appearing for bail application. Because for now, we, we are not sure if he did admit, but then he appeared, no, he handed himself to, to the police yesterday. So have the police said anything about whether the weapon that was used has been retrieved or anything more regarding the circumstances around this case? Retrieved or anything more regarding the circumstances around this case? Uh, he is gone because he was found in possession of an illegal firearm and live ammunition because I think the police, they took those guns because it's one of the cases that he's facing. He's facing murder and, 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 and being found in a position of illegal firearm and live ammunition. We'll leave it there for now. Our reporter, Sonny Pile Fagazi, out in Durban at the Magistrates Court there. And joining us on the line now is researcher specializing in gender violence at Witt City Institution, Lisa Vetten. Lisa, good to speak to you again. And uh, thanks for uh, speaking to us here on Update at Noon. So, firstly, I was actually wondering whether this is a case of an increased incidence of femicide or is it just more prevalent because of the various platforms on which people can talk about it and post about incidents that actually do occur?
I think you're probably right about the latter, Hakeem, that what we're talking about is an increased interest rather than an increased number. But, I mean, one must point out that we don't, that the last figures we actually have for these cases do date back to 2009, and we have actually seen an increase in the number of murders being reported to police over the last five years. Unfortunately, the police don't break down um, victims by their gender. So we don't know whether that increase has been to both men and women's murders or whether the increase is largely in men or women's murders only. Lisa, would you say that uh, some of these cases get more attention than others? And if so, why would that be the case? They're very different. Some cases very definitely get more attention than others. Because if we look at these figures for 2009, they would suggest that on average, three women are being killed every single day by their intimate male partners, and that women are more likely to be murdered by their intimate partners than they are by strangers. So the fact that this is a daily occurrence, yet it's something we seem to remember only when a very high-profile case happens, does tell us that our attention is not equally divided and placed on all cases. If I look at the cases that have attracted the most attention recently, they've involved, obviously, Oscar Pistorius' case and Khadabal McQuayla's case. And I must say, I was left wondering if the reason people paid those two cases particular attention had a lot to do with the attractiveness of the two women concerned. Um, and that is what outraged people. I'm also then reminded of the Flabber case, you know, where he, uh, yes. he was a man and he was the victim, also, you know, uh, stabbed and uh, killed by an intimate partner. Yes, that's right. And in that case, there was a, a suggestion that there may have been a history of domestic violence and other difficulties in that relationship, but it wasn't particularly well explored. So I think, you know, the problem with the fact that we focus only on a few cases now and again means that we don't understand or explore the larger context as to why these killings happen. And very often there are histories of domestic violence, which we don't look at. We don't ask, is the help adequate to enable victims to leave or to seek proper help? We don't ask what could have been done to try and prevent it. And we don't ask what is being done in order to ensure that perhaps children who grow up witnessing this don't go on to repeat this in the next generation. So, you know, we focus on the case, but we don't focus on the broader issue and how we address it. Is there any further breakdown with regard to uh, the demographics around this? Because, um, you know, one wonders whether it's more prevalent in one area, one race group, one age group, as opposed to another. Well, age-wise, it's usually women in their early 50s, but that's, you know, on average. But that probably means that women in their 20s and women up to about their 40s, that will be the age band where risk is, is greatest. But that doesn't mean that old women are not at risk, for instance. I think when we're talking about race, then it would appear to be pretty evenly distributed across race groups, although uh, we don't really have any recent data to be able to, to, to look at that. And it certainly isn't a problem that is only confined to poor communities. People are very fond of saying, oh, well, it's men who are uneducated and unemployed and who drink too much, and that's probably why they did it. But if you look at some of the cases we've seen, like those of Oscar Pistorius or Christopher Paniotti, for example, those men certainly don't fit that profile. So I think we tend to want to try and locate the problems in a particular group without recognizing that this is a much broader and general phenomenon.
And Lisa, as we speak, and you know, as you yourself have indicated, where there isn't perhaps greater breakdown of some of these uh, statistics that do exist, is this an issue of funding? Is there not enough attention being paid to uh, this particular phenomenon and um, you know area of study? Because we seem to be, you know, going on anecdotal evidence quite a bit, uh, as opposed to speaking to the facts. That's right. And I think one of the problems we, we have is that we don't use our police statistics as sources of information in order to try and develop strategies to intervene. We tend to use them in order politically to fight over whether or not the police are doing a good job in relation to preventing crime. Whereas what the police should actually be doing is collecting information on what was the sex of the victim and the perpetrator, what was the relationship between the two. And I think what would also be important is was there a protection order in place um, at the time somebody was killed by their intimate partner? Because I think if we had that kind of information, it starts to tell us who's at risk, are these cases increasing, are they perhaps increasing in particular areas, if protection orders are not working, what does that mean for what we have to do in order to make them much more effective? So I think there'd be some fairly simple interventions that we could make at the level of police recording that would give us the kind of intervention, the kind of information that we'd need to be so much more effective. But I think, as I said, unfortunately, our use of police statistics tends to depend more on being using them as political point scoring rather than using the information about how do we address crime more effectively. Well, thanks for your time, Lisa Vetten, researcher specialising in gender violence at the Witt City Institution.